Picking back up in 1 John this morning. 1 John, we're going to be in 1 and 2. That's where we're going to be. You can flip back there to 1 John. There's still a couple of journals out there in the, in the, uh, in the back if you'd like to get one out in the lobby. Uh, you can do that. So we're, we're, we're really finally starting to get into what John is digging into in this letter. We've gotten uh, past some of his initial things that he wanted to refute to get into the, the real theology and the backbone of this letter. And uh, we're really going to dive into some pretty, pretty thick, pretty heavy stuff this morning. But man, it's some good stuff. And as we get started, I want to ask you a question uh, just to kind of get us started, get your brain going. Daylight savings time, you guys are ready to check out and go to sleep right now, but you can't do that. I need you guys to, uh, to, to think along with me here, and I, I want you to think kind of as we go through this, if you could list the three most effective strategies for defeating sin, what would you list? So just think about that, maybe write them down, jot them down uh, as you come across those. If you were to, to, to figure out in your own life, what are the three most important things for you uh, to to to, to put into place to make sure that you can fight against sin. If you had a new Christian come up to you that says, hey, I'm struggling with sin, I need to know what to do, can you help me? What, were the, what would be the three kind of tips you would give them if here's these three things, and if you've got these three things, you can fight sin and you can fight it well. What would go on that list for you? What would be in the top three? Would you tell them they should read their Bibles? Would you tell them that they should memorize Scripture, that they should... Uh, maybe maybe you, should go, you would go a, a different direction. Maybe you would say you need to get some accountability software on your phone or your computer, kind of build a firewall so that you can't get to, to some of that stuff that's maybe tempting you to sin. Would you tell them to get in, in community? We've talked about that a ton here over the last few weeks, the last couple of months. Would you tell them to get in community with others, to be around others, to uh, join others in, in, in their lives, and they can join you in yours? Or would you go in a different direction? Have, have you, ever, you, ever, you ever done that deal where you put the rubber band on your wrist, and like every time you say something you shouldn't say, you, you flick yourself with the rubber band? You ever seen that? Would you advise somebody to do that, like you put the rubber band on your wrist, or maybe you put a swear jar in your house, and you've got to put a dollar in every time a word slips out. Maybe that's an effective way for you to kind of watch your mouth and to watch your uh, language. Or maybe you're on the other side of things, and, uh, or maybe you kind of you go with it, you take it to the next level, and it's all about discipline and punishment. So you create some sort of system where, where uh, you can make sure that you, are, you or someone else is there for punishment. This is particularly effective with your kids. So if you see that your kids are sinning, you say, this is where this is going to stop, and let me tell you how this is going to stop, because I have three very effective strategies for you. Uh, maybe that's what you do with, with your kids. Jesus gives us some advice. He tells us that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it out. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So was that on your list? Was uh, radical amputation of, of a hand on your list as an effective strategy for defeating sin? There's a lot of different directions you could go if you wanted to, to build this list. But I, my, my question is, what's on your list? What if I told you that all those things might be an option, some better than others, but none of those are anywhere close to anything that John prescribes for us? Maybe one or two of them gets going in the right direction. But for the most part, everything I just listened that would probably make it on the top three for a lot of our lists, John, John doesn't prescribe at all. 
John is going to talk a lot about sin in this letter over the next few chapters. He's going to talk about it a lot. So we're going to have to really dig into the nature of sin at some point in this letter, but we're not going to do that today because John doesn't write in the same way that I think and the way that I think most kind of Western minds think. He doesn't start by building a foundation and building a case That's the way Paul writes most of the time. Whenever we studied Paul's letters, when we studied Romans, that's what he did. When we studied Philippians, he he kind of established a main thesis, and then he explained that throughout. That's how we understand things to work. But that's not really how John works. And so what John's going to do is before he even defines sin, before he even lays out what it is or or, or the full problem that it causes, what he's going to do is he's going to give you some remedies for it. He's writing a little bit, to to my mind, uh, backwards or even kind of writes in circles a little bit. We've talked about that. I'll explain whenever that comes up here in a few weeks. We'll kind of go through that a little bit more as well. But before we define sin, John is going to give us a strategy this morning for defeating sin. So here we are at the beginning of this letter, and John tells us something about who God is. Last week we saw this, that John began to really kind of get to the meat of this letter, letter and he, he introduces us to something that sounds and feels like a warm and fuzzy. Something that, that we've heard a lot and we're like, oh, that makes me feel good. That's a very comforting thing to say. He, 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 it's one of those things that you kind of want to you know, cozy up to on a cold winter day. Like This just makes me feel good and warm inside. And he told us that God is light. That's a beautiful sentiment. God is light. The problem is, even though it sounds good, and this was what we saw last week, it's actually a massive problem for us. Remember 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light. And then he adds the clarifying statement, and in him there is no darkness at all. It's that second part that in him there is no darkness at all that creates our problem. Because for us, we know there is darkness in us. John is telling us that God is pure, holy, undefiled. That he is very different than us. He's not giving us a warm and fuzzy here when he says that God is light. He's giving us a massive problem. And the rest of this letter will be, in some ways, an explanation of what it looks like to solve this problem problem, but especially this next paragraph or two that we're going to look at uh, this morning. How do you fix the problem that God is light, there is no darkness, and that we do have darkness in us? How do we fix this problem and how do we see this? So what I want to do is I want to read now all of 6 through 10, what follows that verse I just read, the beginning of chapter 2, and then I want to make a few observations about it. So let's read. First John Chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There it is. You see that? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
So John proposes this problem in these verses, and he re-emphasizes them over and over again. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have no darkness, we lie. If we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar too. He's driving this home several times in just these couple of verses. He's very repetitive. He tells us he's writing these things though so that we won't sin. So he's saying you have sin. You can't say you don't. If you say you don't, you're lying and you're telling us that God is lying about who you are. You have sin. Can we all just kind of get that uh, out of the way? That's what he's saying. But then he says, but I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. And this is what I think is just a fascinating thing to me as I read this. John gives us a, a couple of things here. Two, two or three things, depending on how you kind of break it out. He gives us a, a couple of things. He drives home that we are sinful And then he gives us a big dose of theology. And then he says, I'm telling you these things because this is how you keep yourself from sin. But what did he just tell us to keep us from sin? It was none of that stuff that was on our lists. What is is he trying to get to? What is he trying to say? Whenever he lays out there, he, he, says, he says, you're a sin, don't lie about it, don't call God a liar, we, we know that you sin, we know that you have that. And then he says, but I'm writing this stuff so that you won't sin. But what did he write to tell us that? He didn't tell us to do any of the things that we listed. Where is John's list? Where is his list to tell us what to do? Now here's the thing, he has given us a list in these verses. It just looks very different than what we were looking for. So first, we need to figure out exactly what it is that he's prescribing for us. So before we can get too far ahead of of ourselves and, and start digging into the how of it, we just need to acknowledge what is John prescribing for us? What is he saying? This is what you need to do to defeat sin, to beat sin. And then we'll see how this prescription kind of works. So we've covered point one last week. But let's just make sure we're clear on this one. We need to know that we are sinners. That is his first strategy to help us defeat sin. We need to know that we are sinners. This is the basis for every recovery program, right? The first step in every, in every recovery program, program is to admit you have a problem, right? Right? But this is, this is not just any kind of problem. This is not just even a, a, a big addiction problem. We have much more than just a problem. We have a massive problem. You see, if, 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 if God is holy and has no darkness, but then we have darkness, that is a massive problem. And you need to hear me this morning. You will never understand the love and the grace of God You will never understand the words of the Bible. You will never understand what Christianity is talking about at all if you don't get this point down right at the very beginning. That we are sinners. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I am so glad that you are here. This message might be one of the most important ones that I could lay out for you to hear. If you're checking into this this thing called Christianity and you're trying to figure out what it is, what do we believe, What what do we do, how does this faith impact our lives, this message will lay that out for you, and and what John says right here will lay that out very clearly. But you need to hear me. You will never understand 
anything about Christianity if you do not start right here. That God is holy and that we are not. We are sinners. We fall short of the standard that God has set for us. And that standard is perfection. Absolute perfection. Pure holiness. That is the standard that God has, and we have all fallen short. Since the first couple took a bite of that forbidden fruit and the fall that followed, every single person in some form or fashion has followed their lead and they have said, I will be my own God. I will do it my own way. And we have sinned against God. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Do you see the difference in that? It is part of who we are in our fallen nature. It is part of our fallen flesh. You have to understand this to understand Christianity. If you come into this thinking that all people are basically good and we just need to kind of be coached up to get all the good that we can out of us, we just need to be educated to the maximum ability and then we'll all be good together because that's basically who we are, then you're not going to understand Christianity. You won't understand what this Bible is talking about at all. Because, but, but if you come in here and you say, perfection, that's crazy. Nobody's perfect, right? I mean, we say that. If, if you come in here and you say, that's crazy, nobody's perfect, if that's you, then you've taken the first step towards understanding Christianity and the gospel. The second step, though, is just as big. Because we can say that we're not perfect, but then we can also kind of shrug it off. Because after all, nobody's perfect. And because nobody's perfect, we can assume that that means it's fine that we're not perfect. And we can kind of dismiss it, shrug our shoulders, give it the kind of, eh, whatever. But remember, God demands perfection. God is light and there is no darkness in Him. That is our problem. And God does not shrug off your imperfections. Now that may seem heavy, that may seem weighty this morning. I've, there's good news coming, but you've got to get this part first. He does not just shrug off when you fall short. He does not just kind of go, eh, whatever. Eh, nobody's perfect. Except me. He, that's not what He does. He, he does not do that. But even saying that that's our, our problem and that we're not perfect, that kind of dismisses things as though like we're generally really, really good. We just kind of slip up every now and then. But here's the deal. I, I identify so closely with David in Psalm 51. King David says, I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. I see my sins every day. I see how often I fall short. I see how, how often I, I fly off the handle and my, my, my temper gets out of control. I see how often I have to d deal with this and deal with that and how I handle it in totally the wrong ways. I see my self-centeredness and my selfishness. It is ever before me when I wake up and when I go to bed, when I parent and when I pastor. My sin is always before me. I am not, eh, nobody's perfect. I am, man, I am nowhere even close to perfect. I would just maybe hope I could get to being like an all right dude. That's about where I'm at. So that's not anywhere close to being perfect. So n none of us are perfect and our sin is always before us. My sin is always before me. And John says that we need to know this. We need to feel the weight of this. We need to confess this 
before God and to one another. And this is what he says, if we confess our sins, then he is faithful to forgive us. Now, we're not sure which one John means here. If he's saying we need to confess it to God, we need to confess it to one another. We're not exactly sure which one it is that he's talking about here. Elsewhere, James says that we should confess, uh, confess our sins to one another. And it's also told that we need to confess them to God. So I'm not sure which one John has in view here, but both are applicable. We need to confess those sins. So we need to know that we are sinners, and then we need to confess those sins to each other and before God and come before each other and say, I'm broken. I am messed up. I am sinful. We need to admit to it. We need to own up to it. We don't need to run and hide from it. I want to say this as clearly as I can. Here at Providence, we are not playing games when it comes to this. We are not hiding behind our minivans and our Instagram feeds here, pretending that all is well. It is not. When you show up here at Providence, the reality is is that you are gathered here with a bunch of sinners. Our sin expresses itself in different ways and, 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 and different different types for different people, but we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all rebellious. We're self-centered. We are overly critical. We are sinners, and we know it. Our sin has created a massive chasm between us and God. Paul describes us as enemies to God, all of us. Not that we are just, and nobody's perfect, but we are all enemies to God. And what does God meet that enmity with? This is the really big uh uh-oh. God meets our sin not with a shrug like us, not with a dismissive, meh, nobody's perfect. God meets our sin with his wrath. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God. Now, I know that's not what many of you came here to hear this morning. It's probably, what you not, probably not what you came in looking forward to. It's not a feel-good message, but you need to understand it is at the heart of the biblical message. God is perfect. <clears throat> in order for you to be in communion with Him, He demands perfection in return. If you fall short, and you do, then you have a massive problem. And God's wrath in His justice is demanded to meet our sinfulness. But here's the beautiful part of what John has to tell us. He gives us this massive problem, but He gives us an equally massive solution. Look again in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now John hints at it a little bit there, but he's really going to explain it here in just a minute. So, big problem. We have sin. Solution? John kind of hints at it before he explains it. The the, The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins to one another before God, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. So we have a big problem with our sin, but there's a solution to it. Something about the blood of Jesus and something about being cleansed in the confession. He doesn't explain how that works, but he says it's there. So he doesn't leave us in despair saying, oh no, woe is me. He gives us an answer to it. He talks again about this fellowship, this idea, this seemingly kind of out of place phrase here, blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He's almost passing by it quickly before he gives the full solution. But the reality is, is that our sin has squarely put us in the sights of God's wrath, but that sin can be removed. It can be cleansed. It can be taken away. How? We confess it, and Jesus' blood cleanses us from it, and God forgives those sins. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the solution to this problem. Now, John hints at it in chapter 1, but chapter 2, he lays it out. And in, 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 in chapter 1 and 2, he lays it out. So let's dig into the good news now. He, he said the good news is there, but he's kind of buried the lead. He hasn't really explained exactly how this good news works. So how can God forgive us? It's one thing to say that God does forgive us, but how can he do it and keep his justice intact? I'll give you a hint. He doesn't just shrug it away. He faces it head on. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. Now, that's a big word there. A propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John tells you, I'm telling you these things so that you don't sin, but if you do, then you need to know this. And I'm telling you right now, verse 2 is one of the most beautiful sentences in the entire world. And here's the thing. Most of us have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Because we don't use that word, propitiation. We use the ESV. Part of the reason why I use the ESV is because we keep that it keeps this word in here. But some of you guys probably have a different version out there. I'm curious, if you've got a different version, how does it, what word does it use right there? Instead of propitiation. Atoning sacrifice, all right? Anything else? So there's some that say atonement. There's some that say even a substitution, atoning sacrifice. Now, all of those words are trying to get at this idea of propitiation. And they've removed this idea of propitiation because we don't use it. We don't use that word. It's just not in kind of common language for us. But it's an important word for you to learn this morning, all right? So this is a big theological word, but it's got a huge theological concept behind it. So even though we don't use it, we're going to keep using it here. We're going to use it a lot here in just the next couple of minutes. I love the Indiana Jones movies. You guys, we got Indiana Jones fans out there. I know we've got some, yeah. So... The, the worst of the Indiana Jones movies is the Temple of Doom, uh, at least of the original trilogy. Now, you may disagree with me, but 
you're not going to beat Raiders, and The Last Crusade's really good too. So I like the Indiana Jones movies. The, the Temple of Doom, I remember watching when I was a kid. I don't, remember, I don't know what year it came out, but I remember watching it as a kid. And there is a scene in there, uh, this one right here, a little bit prior to, to this one right here, where the, the, there's a dude that's in this, like, this, this thing, and, and this guy with the big horns, he like reaches in and grabs this guy's heart like, out of his chest. It is a weird deal. And he's like, I was going to show it this morning. I thought, ah, that's maybe a little intense. I don't know. Um, but like he holds his heart up and it's like beaten in his hands. And then they take that guy and they lower him and they just like dip him in the lava and he's gone. That'll mess you up when you're like eight years old. Because you don't know that that's like Indiana. Like you're like, whoa, they do this somewhere. Like this is, this is real. Um, and, and the whole point of what's going on is that that guy and then eventually here, Indiana's girlfriend, uh, are uh, to be human sacrifices to appease the gods. That's the, that's the, the basis behind it. Now, of course, uh, Indiana ends up saving, uh, the, save, saving his girlfriend. They end up getting out of it. Spoiler Sorry, uh, but they end up getting out of it. But that's the whole point. Like that's the that's the, the 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 tension in the movie is trying to get her rescued so that she isn't offered on behalf of these people as a sacrifice to the gods. Now, why did they have to sacrifice to the gods? Because they needed to appease the gods. And if they appease the wrath of uh, the the wrath of that god, then then all of these other people would be spared. This is propitiation. This is what it is. You offer a sacrifice in order to appease, in that case, a God, for us, the God. You offer a sacrifice in order to appease God, and then if that makes him happy enough, you are spared the wrath of God. That is propitiation. That is what that means. An offering or a sacrifice of something of value in order to appease the wrath of God that was otherwise on your head. That is what John is talking about. You say, for real, this is what we believe? Like, we believe the plot of an Indiana Jones movie is, is really kind of what, what saves us. Surely you don't believe this. I knew these Christians were backwards if you're in here this morning and I was talking to you earlier and you're like, this is what they believe? Okay, I can check out now. I don't have to stay around for this. Uh, this is ridiculous. And that would be true if it were the exact same thing. But it's not the same thing. You see, in secular or even religious types of propitiation, it all involves kind of the same idea. In this secular or other religious kind of pagan propitiation, the gods need to be uh, appeased because they are, they are grumpy. They are moody. They are kind of irrationally angry at something, and nobody knows what it is. They don't really care so much about humans except whenever the humans do something to make them mad. And so then they return the favor and they say, you've made me mad, now I will take it out on you. And it's up to us humans to, to get busy doing something to appease these guys. That's the way that propitiation works. To make up for whatever it is that we've done to anger the gods. So humans, we find anything that we can kind of put in that place. Sometimes it's, 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 it's candy. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's, 
It's, it's meat. Paul talks about, about food sacrifice to idols. This is probably what was going on. Sometimes it's, it's something crazy like this, and you see this in the movies, but I mean, this like really happened uh, at, at some point in, in history. Like That really happened where people would be sacrificed in order to appease the gods and try to make them happy. It's offered as a bribe to kind of calm down these randomly angry gods that are above them. Now, that sounds like really crazy, but listen, I want to tell you something. We do the same thing in different ways. If you've been around church for a while, it's not unusual for people to uh, feel like, you know what, I've been distant from God. I feel like uh, I'm not really connected. I'm going to give like a little bit of extra money just to make myself feel better. I'm, I'm going to do some extra, extra Bible studies and pray a little bit more this week to make myself feel better because I've got a guilty conscience. I'm going to give to, to uh, you know, this tornado relief thing because I haven't been to church in a while and I need to make myself feel better. And we're appeasing our gods, our own selves and our own sense of moral uprightness. And so we're appeasing our gods. This happens within the church. It happens outside of the church. We offer these things up. But you see, in, in Christianity, true Christianity, it doesn't work that way. G- compare how it works in true Christianity to how it works in, in this kind of secular, pagan version of propitiation. In Christianity, God is not randomly angry or moody. He is not grouchy at a whim. He is responding to sin in a manner that is entirely consistent with His holiness, with His justice, and with who he is. So this is not, I, I don't know why I made him mad. I don't know what happened here. I've just got to ease the wrath. No, 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 no. The Bible goes to great lengths to say, this is why the wrath of God is on us as sinners. Because we are enemies to God. So this is, this is different in the way that this works here. This is different in the way that it's set up. This is not a randomly kind of halfway angry God. This is a, this is a God who is reacting and acting exactly exactly as he should in light of who he is. The second thing is, we don't provide the sacrifice in Christianity. God does. God determines what is needed to satisfy his wrath, and then he provides that sacrifice himself. We do not come up with it. It is God's initiative to provide it, and it is God's actions that carry it out. It is his doing start to finish. We have nothing to do with it. This is not us trying to figure out, God, how can I make you happy? This is God saying, you have a problem. You have a problem, Tony. You are a sinner, and my wrath is on you, but I have a solution for you, and I will provide that solution for you, and I will send my son, and he will go to the cross, and I will accept that propitiation for your sins. And finally, it is the nature of the sacrifice that is different. We can't offer anything worthy of removing the stain of our sin. Nothing we can come up with would do the trick. No amount of good deeds, no amount of obedience can cleanse us. As verse 7 says, it's the blood of Jesus that does that. We can't offer that. Only God can. 
So this is where Christianity is different than any other faith system in the world. God is rightfully wrathful because of who he is. God initiates and provides the sacrifice. And the nature of the sacrifice is something we never could have provided on our own. To quote uh, theologian John Stott, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. God himself gave himself to save us from himself. This is the gospel. This is what we sing when we say this is amazing grace. That we had a massive problem and nothing we could have done, no toil of our hands would have atoned for those sins. We needed something to appease the wrath of God. And our only hope is if God himself provided that. And praise the Lord he did. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That our sins can be cleansed. Not because they just disappeared. Not because they just kind of randomly went away. Not because God shrugged his shoulders and said, eh, whatever. But because Jesus is our propitiation. He is the one that absorbs the wrath of God. Takes that on himself because of our sin. He was the appeasement to God. And our sin was laid on him. Friends, this is very good news. And John says that this is good news not just for us. Not just for us here in the church. But this is news for the whole world. Anyone that would come to him that would receive this cleansing gift. Anyone that would come to him, he will receive them. Friends, this is Christianity. A massive sin problem met by the only thing that can save us. And anyone can take part in this if they will come to Christ, confess their sins, say I'm a sinner, confess that before God, repent and turn to him. And trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is what John sees as our solution to our sin. So if John, I think, were to give us a solution for us to stop sinning, I think this would be the three things that he would suggest to us. One, know that we are sinners. Two, confess that sin to one another and to God. And three, run to the cross and trust in Jesus' death on your behalf to pay for your sins. He doesn't give us a to-do list of things that we need to go and make ourselves holy and appease God. He says we need to know who we are. We need to know who God is. We need to confess who we are. And we need to trust in the blood of Jesus. I'm not sure that any of those would have been in my top three. Were they in yours? What does it tell us about ourselves that none of us, most of us, wouldn't have put that in our top three? Maybe even in our top ten if we went that far. It tells us that we are hardwired in our bones to run on self-reliance and individualism. It is in our flesh to set up strategies that teach us that if we try hard enough that we can make it. But that's not the Bible. That's American individualism. That is great for starting a business. That is very bad for fighting sin. All of those things. All of those other things we would have listed. They're good. John's going to start talking to us next week about obedience. 
He's not afraid to talk about obedience. He doesn't dismiss obedience. It's just the, the, it's, it's what obedience does and it's what obedience flows from. It all flows from this idea that Jesus is our propitiation. The base for it all is the gospel. You want to stay away from sin? Then be in love with the gospel. Know your sin and know your Savior. That's the strategy he's given us. This morning we have the elements here for the Lord's Supper. I invite you, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in that propitiation, if you have looked to the cross, you have trusted the body broken and the blood spilt, and you have said, that is for me because nothing I could bring would do this. If that's you, then you're welcome to come and take from the elements the body broken, the blood spilled, and to remember what Christ has done on the cross. If that's not you, we would ask that you abstain. I'll be available to talk or to pray with anyone that would like. I'll be available after the service. But we would ask that you abstain as this is a meal in remembrance of, of, and celebration of what God has done for us. But if that is you and you have trusted in Christ, may this morning your affections and your emotions be stirred rightly and truthfully again to see what Christ has done for us. To see what it means to have that wrath that was on us not just disappear, but to be absorbed by another on the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we celebrate your grace because without it, we would have no hope. Had you not initiated this plan, even as, as Paul says that while we were yet sinners, while we were still enemies to you, had you not initiated this plan while we were actively pushing against you, we would have no hope. But before the foundation of the world, you had a plan. Before the foundation of the world, you knew that we would have a problem. And you knew that you could meet it. And thank you that you did. Thank you for your son. May we know that sacrifice more fully this morning than ever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.